Okay, what are you on tonight? I'm going to be on. I am on a Hatherwood Porter. Dark, <laughs> sleek and malted, boy. Dark, sleek and malted. Oh, wow. Right. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, Lee. Thank you. And uh, welcome to uh, the third episode in our nuclear season. And tonight we're going to be talking about the BBC's Edge of Darkness. Fabulous Edge of Darkness. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So Edge of Darkness is a nuclear thriller that was broadcast on the BBC in in the the back end of 1985. Yes. It was written by Troy Kennedy Martin, who I discovered uh, wrote The Italian Job. That's right, he did, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he also created Zed Cars and worked on other shows such as Riley Ace of Spies and The Sweeney, which I think his brother created. Wow. I yeah. didn't get that last, that last bit. Uh, yeah, I think he's called the Ian Kennedy Martin, I think. I knew, uh, I knew about the Italian job and Zed Cars. I didn't know about Riley Ace of Spies, but what a, mm. what a, what a writer. Brilliant what a writer. Written, brilliantly written. TV series, wow. Like I said, it was broadcast in... Oh, it was actually broadcast on BBC Two, Monday nights, 9.30. Bit of a graveyard slot, that, isn't it? I mean, I always had the impression it was on, like, a Sunday night at about 8 o'clock. But it was so successful, so critically acclaimed, that Mm. Michael Grade, who was um, the chief at the Beeb at the time, ordered it to be repeated straight away on BBC One. Wow. So I think they did three double bills because there's six episodes and subsequently it's, uh, you know, got a lot more viewers and uh, yeah, so it's a, it a great success for them. What I find really interesting is is how this came about because I don't know if uh, you know, Dave, but Troy Kennedy Martin, who was a writer at the Beeb at the time, was saying that him and his colleagues were really frustrated by the fact that the Beeb didn't want to take on any of the issues of the day. Well, isn't that interesting? Ooh, funny. Yeah. Things have really were, changed, haven't they? <laughs> you know, all sorts of things were happening. The miners' strike, Thatcher's Britain, and uh, the proliferation of the nuclear state. So he talks about this, uh, and he says that they were never encouraged to do anything like that. Mm. And... They thought that, well, we might as well write it just to get it out of our system. You know, it might not go anywhere. Yeah. We might have to tone it down. We might have to compromise. But at least we'll be doing something that we enjoy. Mm-hmm. Now, the script actually started off as something on the minor strike. And there obviously are yes. some minor type themes within yeah. Edge of Darkness. Indeed. And especially, yeah, because I mean, it starts off in, in, in the first episode like that, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, I think one of the first scenes is him meeting this uh, union leader of the miners called James Godbolt. Godbolt, of course, played by the great Jack Watson, who's just... Yeah, what else has he been in, Jack Watson? Oh, so many things, Lee. I mean, like, I think he was one of the... He very often plays a soldier, doesn't he, in things? Yeah. He he was a soldier in the Wild Geese, I seem to remember. That's it, yeah, that's where I know him from, actually. But I I think his performance in this is great. Yeah. Really, really good. So he's in like one of the first scenes Indeed, yeah. where he's, he's trying to persuade Craven, who is the is the copper, the main character in the show, 
to drop this investigation about some vote rigging when he got re-elected. Yeah. Later on, as the series as the series develops, you think, well, that that all seems a little bit irrelevant. But he comes back in the end, doesn't he? And plays quite a main role. He does indeed into the plot. Yeah. But whilst he was writing this, he suddenly had a change of tack and thought, well, I don't want to do it about the miners because every day I'm picking up the paper and the stuff about nuclear war, nuclear power. So he completely changed tack and, and just created this amazing show about the nuclear state. Yeah, absolutely. He said, I'm writing a series about a detective who turns into a tree. Uh, Have you heard this? No. So, because because Craven's character he does have this obsession with drawing trees, doesn't he? On these, so they talk about that, don't they? The the psychiatrist says that he's got a tree obsession. But anyway, go on. What were you going to say? Oh, does he? I, I missed. Yeah, that. it's in yeah. the last episode. In the last episode, where we see Kanakan Lodge, of course, which is of fantastic. course, yeah, we'll have to talk about that. Yeah, indeed, we will. How's the patient? Very interesting. He has what primitives call a bush soul. He identifies himself with a tree. I mean, is he suffering from shock or depression or what? All three. The what being grief. Anyway, I'll tell you about the tree thing in a bit, but what is Edge of Darkness about? Well, it's about lots of things, isn't it? It's about death, grief, plutonium, secrecy, deep conversations. Shadowy goings on, politics, privatization, corporate greed, ultimate power, yeah. naked ambition. Can you tell I'm reading this? Yeah. And the annihilation <laughs> of civilization. Corruption, deception, betrayal, cover ups, the Gaia hypothesis, which yeah. is linked into the tree, yeah. eco warriors, Thatcher's Britain, the so called special relationship between the US and the UK. Mm. It's about Reagan's Star Wars program, the Secret Service, the Civil Service, Whitehall, Blazers at Henley, Megalomania, Self-Sacrifice, the Future of the Planet, Nature versus Man, and the battle between good and evil. Exactly. And I think that's it. I mean, there's a primordial and primeval kind of sense about it, too. There's a kind of supernature, supernatural element, which I think is quite brilliant, too, because... It's what sets it apart, isn't it? For me? It was what sets it apart. I mean, I know we're going to go into the stuff. Perhaps it's the wrong time to bring this up, so I'll talk about this as we go on. But mm. I found this quite intriguing within it, this kind of this almost supernatural element to it. Let's just say the spring in his garden, the natural spring yeah. that develops in his garden. We'll come to that in a bit. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you crack on and talk about what, what happens first and foremost. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that the listeners have watched Edge of Darkness because there's going to be a hell of a lot of spoilers. We're basically going to go through the whole plot. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, maybe don't listen to this podcast now, but but Mm. hopefully this will inspire you to find it and watch it and then come back to the podcast because it's it's brilliant. It measures up to anything today for the quality. Some people viewing it might find it a little bit slow in today's terms, I would say not because a lot of Netflix stuff is fucking tediously slow and stretched out. Absolutely, yeah. Um, no, you know but, what, Dave? I could watch this. I've finished watching it again today. Probably yeah. the third time I've properly watched it all. Yeah. And I could watch it again. 
Well, it's the sort of show that you don't actually want to end. Absolutely not. I mean, you miss I felt, it. You miss the characters. And I felt quite badly because I, because of time constraints, what I had to do was actually fast track through certain bits of it. I was going to say superfluous stuff. Not so. It's not really superfluous, but a lot of slow tracking shots, and because there's quite a lot of slow scenes, and obviously the first two or three episodes have a lot of kind of this really aching depression from the lead character Craven. So yeah. I was wanting to get to the juicy scenes in between some of this, but even doing that, even having to do that, it's so compelling. And I was kind of feeling bad that I was doing that because I was thinking this is such a good, this is such a brilliant TV series of such high quality, of such great acting. And there's another character that, well, the two main protagonists, we're going to need to speak at some length about them because they're both superb in it, as is Joanne Wally, uh, who became Joanne Wally Kilmer. Brilliant. Well, there's no it. shit characters, I think. There's I no think shit characters. The supporting cast is amazing. And I think we said this about when we were talking about succession. Yeah. Is that no character is is half written. No, they're not. A TV series like this is an actor's dream, isn't it? So everybody in it is going to come to the table to deliver their best performance. But yeah. the performances of Bob Peck and Joe Don Baker in it are just Tour de force. The pair of them are so brilliant in it. I'm a, a massive fan of Joe Don Baker. Anyway, I think he's, yeah. I think he's one of the most underrated actors uh, of this generation. Well, do you know he said it was the best thing he's ever done? That's saying something. Because yeah, and he said he talks really quite movingly about it, how much it means to him. He says in Britain you care about the TV you make. In America, you get yeah. one or two takes. That's if you break your arm in the first one. This was just such a pleasure to work on. You'd get seven or eight takes, and then you would ask your opinion and whether you wanted to go again. He really felt respected as an actor, and he actually took a pay cut once he'd read the script, just so he could appear in it. What a guy. What a yeah. guy. I'm so glad he's still alive. I'm so glad he's still alive. Oh, is he? Because I, I was trying to think, obviously, what else has is, is he been in, which uh, he's been in... Charlie Varick, which is one of our favourite films. And he's brilliant in Charlie Varick. I mean, he's an absolute menacing, horrible bastard in Charlie Varick. He's brilliant. But he's got this kind of eccentric charisma about him. He's got this... He's a brilliant presence on the screen. And he's been... Mm. I think he's been criminally underused in certain films and certain things that he's been... Because he's such a good actor. He's brilliant. And this, this performance is so good. Because he mixes this kind of eccentricity and comedy with this with this idea of somebody who is potentially extremely dangerous as well. Definitely. Yeah. But he's got this incredible, he's got all these eccentricities and all these strange peccadilloes. Almost maybe there's almost an homoerotic element in it as well, you know. This is another side that's that I really noticed within it. It's been kind of written in. You're right there, Dave, but some have mentioned the this possible incest. Which, well, he's, yeah, well, we might get onto though. He's a load of bullshit, the, if you ask me. Yeah, I know the bit you, we got. We, we're certainly going to have to talk about, which is a very, very odd, very unusual moment with Bob Peck's grief and everything, which we obviously we're going to come to in a sec. Yeah. But uh, there's a scene when when uh, one of um, Joe Don Baker, uh, his character's name is Dar- Dar- Darius Jedba, and he comes home. 
uh, or comes to this apartment where one of his buddies who's been on a mission with him has been injured very badly, either fatally injured or or in a really bad state. And the guy who's sort of looking after their house breaks down in tears. And it's obviously a suggestion that he's kind of his lover, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, yeah, he's definitely and, gay, isn't he? And then he turns around and he says, Have you got my come dancing tapes? Did you take come dancing? Did you take come dancing for me? Oh. The finals, that's what he calls it. He said, Did you take the finals of come dancing for yeah. me? You know, as this guy's weeping because he wants to watch the ballroom dancing. He's full of quirky oddities, this this character. Brilliantly written. Yeah. I think that, that scene also shows how matter of fact. He's Absolutely, death is and losing a losing a friend, you uh, know, because of the job he does. He's just desensitized to it. Like, oh well, you know, it just didn't work out for him. That's that's life. Brilliantly putly, because I I thought that was fantastic. Almost like sociopathic, slightly, not sociopathic really. Somebody who is just used to death, exactly, used to having colleagues yeah. die around him, still just trying to find a way to just get on with his life. That's why he's so quirky and eccentric because he's seen and after, he's seen and and done so much dodgy shit and so many kind of nefarious CIA undertakings, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that, that, the way he turns up his golf bag and there's his fucking automatic rifle, you know, inside him. <laughs> he loves golf as well, doesn't he? He loves to come dancing, food and golf. Like this program, Craven. Come dancing. Yeah. It's my favorite program. We don't have anything like that in the States. You want a drink? Vodka and ice. All right. How was El Salvador? Well, I spent the entire time playing poker with gangsters. One long round of gold chains and designer jeans. He's passionate about these things. He's really interesting. Yeah. He's got a good sense of humor. And uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic character that runs through it. And of course... Of course, spoiler alert, he does, as the series go on, you you find out more and more that he becomes a really heroic character, really, in the end. Yeah. I definitely. think, anyway. He definitely heroic. does, you're right. Okay, so um, we'll talk a bit about the plot now. The first episode, so it's six parts, like we say. So the first episode is called Compassionate Leave. And um, the protagonist of the show is uh, played by... Bob Peck, his character is Inspector Ronald Craven, who's a Yorkshire policeman. Chopper. He's been widowed and he's brought up his daughter on his own uh, from the age of 10, Emma, she's called. So Emma's now about 21 and she's a bit of a political and environmental activist, isn't she? So in fact, one of the first scenes we see is Craven picking her up from a university where she's attending this environmental meeting where we see the real Michael Meacher MP giving a speech. Yes, we do. That, yeah. is, that is a brilliant That point, throws yeah. you a bit, doesn't it, in the it first does. few scenes? He's acting, obviously. He's, he's acting to this audience of, of, of other actors who are playing students at a university. Yeah, uh, It's quite a good job, to be fair. But he gives quite a passionate speech about... He does. I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's about, you know, you've got to care, you've got to wake up. Yeah. So anyway, he picks her up and the real cataclysmic moment happens when they get back to the house. And they're trying to get out of the rain and they're confronted by a very scary gunman that ambushes them. And uh, he screams at Craven, calling him a murdering bastard. 
Yeah. And as he's about to shoot, Emma jumps in front of her dad and takes both barrels. Yeah. And that's basically the story kicked off. Now, although Emma's clearly dead, that isn't the last we see of her because she turns up throughout the series in random moments uh, as a like a physical projection of Craven's mind, part of the grief process, I suppose. Yeah. Where she guides him, she gives him advice on mundane things like the <coughs> washing, but she also gives him clues what to look for, who to speak to, and and gets him to think about what he's doing. And Which makes that kind of almost seem even more than a projection of his mind, because, like you say, there are elements where she's saying she's giving hints and pushing him in a certain direction, and you're kind of thinking, wow, this is this is sort of just slightly veering into the idea of the supernatural with it. Yes. So there is that almost kind of otherworldliness about the series as well, which adds, again, to the flavour mm -hmm. of this very rich pot of drama, you know. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You think from that point on, don't you, that this is going to be like your standard police procedural thriller? They're, they're going to find out who the killer was, because uh, he was clearly it seems targeting Craven and she just got in the way. Yeah. And that's what they work on. The, the police are looking for somebody that would have a grudge against Craven, somebody that he put away in the past. And uh, that leads the investigation going down to London, doesn't it? Yes. Which yeah. I'm not quite sure why. Do you know why it moved from York? Was it something to do with did Scotland Yard have to get involved or...? Yeah, they, they they wanted him to go. They wanted him to go down, didn't they? I know one of the suspects. So they find some fingerprints on a getaway car, don't they? Yeah. Uh, and I think maybe that's why they're in London because they track down this because character called Low. And it's it's Low who Low who they eventually track down, and he throws himself out the window, doesn't he? Yeah. He's barely alive, and then they're using Craven. Bob Peck's character to uh, talk to him to try and get it, to try and establish some information because th the reason why he's valuable to them, as far as that's concerned, as far as going to to try and track this guy down, is he, Ron Craven, Bob Peck's character, is renowned for his work in interrogation. He's got real skills in interrogating in interrogating prisoners. Yeah, he sort of gets them on his side because he uses because uh, he had, he spent some time in Northern Ireland where he would recruit like grasses. He said he developed some technique where he'd get really close and friendly with them, yeah, even to the point where he's he's touching them and yeah. stroking them, so he becomes very touchy feely. It's, with again, it's almost homoerotic. It is, yeah, because he actually says at one point, sometimes I will kiss them, so it goes in this. It goes in these strange areas, this strange direction. And he uses this technique on this guy, doesn't he? Because he knows yeah, he's nearly dead. He's nearly dead. He's dying. He's stroking him. He's kissing him and he's asking him. And he's and this is what he does. He's brilliant at this, this compassionate, using this compassionate technique to extrapolate information. And he mm. manages to get it off this guy, doesn't he? When they're in London. Yeah. And as a consequence of that, they have a name. For the guy, the gunman, yeah. So the it turns gunman. out that Lowe, who was in hospital and dying, he's the getaway driver. Sure. And he gives him the name of this other guy who is known to Craven and his boss, someone he put away again, 
from, so it seems like it's wrapped up, and, and that's and that's what his boss thinks. You know, oh, okay, it was. But you know, course, his boss is like, I told you so. I told you this was about yeah, yeah. revenge. Yeah, at the same time, I think this is probably what you're going to say. Craven's down there on his own mission because he wants to speak to Emma, his daughter, her boyfriend, who yeah, is that's who right. is in London at the point, time, yeah. and this is when he realizes that. Emma was up to things that he had no clue about. So well, actually, before that, Dave, is the scene, uh, we should say, before he actually heads down to London, not long after she dies, is he goes in a room, doesn't he? And he yes. puts on a record, one of her records, oh, yeah. a Willie Nelson song. Willie Nelson record. And he starts going through her drawers where he discovers yeah. a box file marked Gaia. Of course. G-A-I-A. This is a key, absolutely This right. is a key moment, isn't it? A key moment before he so goes down there. So it contains maps, uh, a compass, but most intriguingly of all, a Geiger counter. A Geiger counter. And it's yeah. like, what the fuck's this all yeah. about now? And then he finds a vibrator. Yeah. Which is obviously a big, big surprise for him. Yeah. But then, even more shocking, he finds a gun. Which he is like be. a big what the fuck's going on moment. And again, we have to say oh, once again, this idea of kind of kind of strange little moments. Brilliantly done, though. And I, I think in this case, from something I heard once, that it, this was Bob Peck's improvisation in the scene. That he looks at the vibrator, his daughter's vibrator, and he kisses it. Which I think is kind of creepy in a way, but not because... It's all about this. It's, I mean, this guy. This was his life. This is all he had was his daughter, you know. And mm. he's kind of just kissing something that was very close to her. That yeah. was obviously, you know, it, it's 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 not salacious or weird. It's kind of heartbreaking. In fact, mm. I find that that first episode almost unbearable to watch, to be honest. Because he plays it. I mean, Bob Peck is such a brilliant actor. Sadly, he's passed away, you know, far too young. But he's so brilliant in it. I actually, literally, I don't mind admitting, because I find that kind of idea of, you know, so hard to watch. And as a, as a parent myself, I'm sure you do too, I mean, Lee. Oh, when yeah. you a parent, those kind of scenes and those kind of ideas in films are just, they really tug at you, don't they? they and that moment was really kind of touching in a kind of unusual way but doesn't he when he's using the Geiger counter he then suddenly realizes that there's something that's really really reacting to the Geiger it's counter. a lock of hair and it's a lock of her hair so it would suggest and this is the other thing which is quite telling her hair is incredibly radioactive and it would suggest that Emma may have only had a few, she may have only had a few weeks or months left of her life anyway. Yeah. Which right. is incredible, really. Hi, Dad, it's Emma. I'll be at college till 10. If it's still raining, will you pick me up? Love you. Bye. Ratatouille. Yeah, just going back to that that scene when he kisses the vibrator. I mean, a lot has been made of it since, but I don't think much was made of it. You imagine there would have been outrage on points of view in 1985, something like that. There wasn't, was there, I don't think? No, I don't think there was. I think people saw it for what it was. It was like an act of reverence more than anything dodgy. Like you say, he was thinking to himself, you're a grown woman now and 
good for you. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a really good way of looking at it. I think that's probably part of his Because he still with lived with her and he probably did yeah. see her as still as the little girl. What's great about scenes like that, though, Lee, which is something that was allowed to happen in the 80s and the 70s in programmes, was there was an ambiguity in it. And you could you could decide yourself. This guy was traumatised by what's happened. Of course, mm-hmm. he's going to do the odd thing, the odd irrational, strange thing. Because yeah. he's, he's in a terrible state. And like you say, he's just looked at that and thought, oh, my God, she's a grown woman living her own life. And here's a vibrator. Wow. Mm-hmm. And kissed it because it's something, again, that's close to her. And it's made him realise... Yeah. They had a very close relationship too. They had a really loving, close relationship. You see that in the car, don't you? When just oh. before she dies, when they're coming back from the, the university, it makes the it car. all the more traumatic, doesn't it, Lee? Yeah. Because they're having this beautiful time together, coming home and have made your ratatouille, and they're talking about the ratatouille and the rain's pouring down, and you can see they're so happy to see each other and be in each other's company. And then this terrible thing happens, and she's the next minute she's dead. And it's interesting, I think that scene in the when he is in a room and he sees he probably has viewed her as quite naive before this, you know, typical yeah. student into the, all these issues and she's going to get a shot when the real world hits her. But the discovery of the Geiger counter and the gun, yes. I mean, that just that just turns his his head around, doesn't it? It's like, what, right. what is going on? And I think from that point on, he started to wonder whether there was more to her death yeah than a botched attempt to kill him yes yes and, and i think you're dead right it's, i mean it's such a key scene that to the progression of the whole thing and the then when you... he then when he goes down to london uh he's sort of there unofficially isn't he he's not supposed to be part of the investigation but his bosses took pity on him said you know go down keep up to date and this that and the other but i think the end of the first episode it's great because he's just in his hotel room and he gets a call from a man sat in a car who yeah. introduces himself as Pendleton. Yes. Room 7016. Detective Inspector Craven. Speaking. I'd like a word with you. Who are you? My name is Pendleton. Can you meet me in the car park? When? totally in the hands of a potential aggressor and that's it he he hangs up and uh you think right okay this is taking a different direction so the next episode into the shadows we find out that pendleton is this uh government guy with a very unspecified role he just says he's attached to the prime minister's office Mm. so peck doesn't know what he's really up to but he explains to Craven that the government have been aware that of Gaia's activity in relation to them breaking into this nuclear waste facility in Yorkshire called Northmore. Yeah. They tell him that Emma led them in. He led the group of yeah. about six of them. They're not really sure why, but all of them have either gone missing or have been found dead. And one of the dead ones is actually discovered riddled with radiation. Yeah. So Pendleton's assignment seems to be to try and find out what they were doing so this is why he's got in touch with craven and uh, then he introduces him craven to his partner harcourt played by the brilliant ian mcneese and he's essentially a lawyer 
But like Pendleton, he's been drafted in for this assignment. But then they, I think they introduce him to Jedburgh, don't they? Yes. I think so, yeah. So we, we should explain that, they, you know, that one of the key things is this nuclear waste plant called Northmore, which is owned by a private company called IIF, which stands for yeah. International Irradiated Fuels. Uh, it's run by a guy called Robert Bennett. Bennett, who is played by Hugh Fraser. Hugh with... Fraser is brilliant because he is the epitome to me of your Jacob Rees-Mogg type figure. Fluffy voice, poshly spoken, slimy, sly. You know, yeah, well, he's got a great haircut in this, hasn't he? He's got, he's got like, big hair. Big, big hair. Like, kind of B.A. Robertson type. Yeah, it's quite mullety, isn't it? It's like... <laughs> but he's balding at the same time. He's, going yeah. a bit, he's receding. Yeah. Uh, he's not giving up his rock and roll hair. No. Uh, so Northmore's business is disposing of low-level nuclear waste. So... I think Pendleton and well, Harcourt realise initially. Yeah, so they realised that that wouldn't ordinarily produce the amount of radiation they've discovered on the bodies that they've found of the people that broke into Northmore. Another thing to say is I think the reason Gaia broke into Northmore to try and find what they were doing is that they discovered high levels of radiation in a nearby river. So yeah. they started to get a bit suspicious about what was going on there, as did the CIA. And that's how Jedberg gets involved, yeah. Joe Don Baker's character. Craven, my name is Jedberg. Who did you say you are? Darius Jedberg. I'm a friend of Harcourt's. I am not a friend of Harcourt's. I only met him today and I don't like him already. Well, he speaks very highly of you, son. That's okay with me. Look, I'd like to meet you. When? Well, now, for Christ's sakes. Look, I just saw you on television now. The sight of you struggling in that sea of sanctimonious shit still for my eyes. It's almost 11.30, Mr. Jedberg, and I'm just about to go to well, bed. Well, take a cold shower and get on down here, you bastard. I really want to meet you. I'm at the Tiberio restaurant on Curzon Street. The Tiberio? On Curzon Street, Craven. He contacts Craven and tells him all about Guy's activities, and he, he tells him he's, he's had a file on... Gaia and he's got a file on Emma who he describes as a terrorist yes. which obviously shocks Craven yeah. but he says anyone who messes with plutonium is a terrorist Yeah. so that is the premise of the investigation is that they think Northmore has been illegally storing or making plutonium Yeah. which um, I didn't realise that wasn't allowed actually i thought once you get into the nuclear weapons game anything goes but well i would imagine that there's huge um legislation about it. yeah there is there and is. i would imagine also that a private company because yeah that's a good point actually this company gets taken over by an american company called fusion mm. so this again is it's a private american company where suddenly there's a suggestion that... Well, that's going through, isn't it? That, that's not quite done, the takeover. Not quite done, but uh, but the, the, I think the is, is the implication not that this has been something that they've been looking to do and to store this plutonium uh, there on behalf of and as a consequence of... Well, that's, the, that's what they're trying to find out. Like, whose yeah. plutonium is it? Who's given the order? Exactly. What's it going to be used for? 
Exactly. But at this point, we've got this trio of high-level deep state characters who are circling Craven. You know, he's just been thrown into a completely different world. He's got Harcourt and Pendleton. They're trying to find out stuff from him, what he knew. Same with Jedberg. So it's like this two-way thing where they're trading information. They're helping him understand what his daughter was involved in and why she might have died. But they also suspect he might be involved as well. So you're never quite sure if they're on his side or or if they're actually good guys. Mm. Um, even though he does start to form this friendship with Jedberg, you wonder whether he's being used by him. Yeah. And I think Craven is wise enough to understand that himself. He is quite suspicious and he doesn't willingly trust them. And he doesn't trust Harcourt or Pembleton. No, I mean, they don't even hide the fact. They don't even try to make themselves no. look trustworthy, do they? No. You no. kind of, in a weird way, I felt, trusted Harcourt a little bit more than Yeah, Pembleton. definitely, Dave. Harcourt is the more trustworthy of the two, and, even for a lawyer. And he's pretty straight talking about some of the things that he thinks are taking place in Northmore, which mm. is... You know, so you're thinking, oh, this is quite refreshing. We're getting somewhere with this. Would you say that Gaia was a subversive organisation? They broke a few rules. Did you know that six of them broke into the nuclear waste plant at Northmore eight weeks ago and they were led by your daughter? No. What we want to find out is whether Emma's death had anything to do with the break-in. Is there anything to suggest that it was? Circumstantial evidence. Everyone connected with the raid has either disappeared or is dead. We've had a report from the coroner. Her body was subject to massive doses of radiation consistent with her participation in the break-in. All I can tell you is that we are interested in anything that goes on at Northmore. That is our brief. What concerns us at the moment is whether your daughter's death is as a result of the break-in or, as your police colleagues believe, a rather unfortunate accident. What do you think? I came here to discuss the file Mr. Pendleton mentioned last night. A file on Emma. I haven't got a file on her, have we? He's talking about Jedberg's file. Oh. Well, I see no reason why Mr. Craven shouldn't be put in touch with Jedberg, providing he helps us first. Let's be clear about this. You want me to help you, but you won't tell me what all this is about. That's right no intention of putting him in the picture that's what we're paid for what i think troy kennedy martin's done so well here in this piece is he's kind of created a john le carre story around um the idea of nuclear power you know yeah uh, he's done it's so so brilliantly done so he's got that element of of espionage in there and the this list of characters that you're not quite sure until the final the final act or the final third of the piece certainly mm. um who to trust and who not to trust you know yeah. they're all sort of uh, like harcourt and um pendleton they are sort of stabbing in the dark to a certain extent aren't they they're, they're not quite sure even though they've got loads of government connections it seems and um that they're still not quite sure what is going on at Northmore. He's got very strong suspicions, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, they eventually say, don't they? They tell Craven that Robert Bennett, the 
head of IIF uh, yeah. killed their daughter or ordered her death. Yeah. But they, they need the proof. Yeah. Anyway, so if we move on now to the third episode, which is called Burden of Proof. Burden of Proof, yeah. And in this episode, the police, this is where they locate Low, the former criminal that Craven put away. He turns out to be the getaway driver. And they locate him. And as you said, they bust his door down, but he tries to escape and he jumps out of the sixth floor window and he's half dead. He gives, on his dying words, he gives the name Macroon to Craven which is a name that's known to the police. He was another criminal that was put away by Craven. Absolutely. And uh, the police think it's an open and shut case. They just need to track down McCroom. But Craven's found out all this other stuff about Emma, and he's convinced there's some link there. Yeah. And he waits for McCroom to come back, doesn't he? He sure does, yeah. He wants to see if he can find out from McCroon who gave him his orders. Mm. So McCroon does end up coming back and he gets into Craven's house. He's got the shotgun on him and he's, he's about to kill him. But and Craven isn't bothered, is he? He doesn't really care about his life anymore since Emma's died. But all he wants is for McCroon to tell him who gave him the orders. And he begs McCroon to tell him before he shoots him. And it appears that McCroon is going to tell him until he's taken out by a police marksman. Yeah, amazing scene because yeah, because you think, you know, you just think, what the initially think, what the hell's gone on here? Because McCroon suddenly falls back, splattered. You think he's just about to shoot Craven and kill him without giving Craven any sort of information, but it's all in vain anyway because a marksman takes out takes out McCroon and then Craven just sinks into a ball on the ground, screaming and shouting, no, 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 because he desperately wanted to just know what was, why and yeah. why Emma was killed. Before, he was quite happy to die. He thought, I'm going to die in this moment, but I just want to know. I just want to know what happened to Emma uh, before I die. And yeah. that gives you a clue about his state of mind and his personality because you realise at that point, that is all that Craven is living for. All he's living for now is he just wants to know what happened to his daughter. And he will sacrifice anything as a consequence of that. Yeah. He's not bothered he, about his own life. He's got nothing to live for anyway. He's lost his yeah. wife, his daughter. Yeah. He's got nothing. Yeah. I think the guy who plays McCroon is scary. He's really oh, scary, yeah. isn't he? It's a, he's got a right psychopathic stare. Scary scenes. The scene before it as well, where he's just sort of stalking the house. Is yeah. Yeah. Really creepy as well. The night I think this episode actually opens with like this shot of McCroon exhausted the rain from the back, and the camera pans round and you see his face. It does. Yeah, it's <laughs> very creepy. I was looking for you, Sergeant. She just got in the way. You fired both barrels in. She was coming up to you like a goalkeeper. You could have picked me off blindfolded if you'd wanted to. You daft Irish prat! I was in no hurry. I knew I'd get you sooner or later. But how long have you been out? A year. And you waited a whole year before you came looking for me. I told you, Sergeant. I Someone gave no you the gun and the car and told you where to find us. Who was it? Why don't you make your peace with God? I want to know before you pull that trigger. 
Oh, what's the use? You were both marked. Both of you. Ask her, Craven. Next time you meet her. Please. I want to know. It's a great, it's really well made piece of work as well. The, the thing is, because it's got such a good story and, and, and some great character development, you kind of forget about how it's been filmed as well. And it has been filmed really well. It's been made yeah. brilliantly. Definitely. Well, Martin Campbell, the director, he uh, he was known as a bit of a maverick director at the time, wasn't he? Apparently he'd done some maverick directing on shoestring. And I think, what else did he do? Yeah, he works on The Professionals as well, Minder. And he went on to do a couple of James Bond films in which yeah. he cast Joe Don Baker. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's cast him again, and, and it's kind of sadly in the end what probably more people will know Joe Don Baker for at the end of his career is that he's in two, he's a reoccurring character in, in James Bond films than, than dare I say it, this is just, which is his, and he'll obviously be known for, for Charlie Varick as well, but I think it, over time he will be, this, this TV series will keep coming back one way or another over time. You know, it's going to be one of these things that generations will pluck it out again. You know, it's got that kind of quality, hasn't it? Yeah. So I think that's what, what's good about these these great lead performances from Bob Peck and from Jordan Baker. They will, I, th- I think they'll sort of live the test of time because I think it's quality, isn't it? It's a quality piece of work. Absolutely. So we come to episode four, Breakthrough. And in this episode, through an old contact in Ireland, he finds a way to get access to an MI5 computer. So yes. this guy puts him in touch with this couple. Yes. Who help him break into an office. This is a brilliant scene. He gets into the computer and he finds out more about Emma and Gaia. And he also finds out that the government think McCroom was acting on the orders yeah. of Northmore Security. Of Northmore Security. Right. And then... To kill Emma. Well, well, people know, the government know he's there, don't they? So for some reason, I suppose when he's logged into the computer, it's alerted somebody. Yeah. And the police are on the way. Bob's trying to get all this info and he's printing a map out on a dot matrix printer. <laughs> Imagine how long that took. So he's found yeah. this map of Northmore and yeah. he's trying to print it out before he gets caught. The other two, the couple that he's with, they scarper. Yeah. And uh, it's got all these cops legging it through this building, but he he gets what he needs and makes a dash for it. And uh, before about 25 coppers catch up with him, his escape route's a bit weird because he ends up yeah. in a theatre. Yeah, he? I saw that. <laughs> Where he meets another character, Clem, who is played by Zoe Wanamaker. That's right. Zoe now, he's already met her before. I think yeah. she's an associate of Jedberg and also a yeah. member of Gaia. So Jedberg says, you know, look after Craven. I think that's why she's there. She inevitably ends up sleeping with him. But they form quite a nice bond, don't they? You know, she does yeah. seem to really care about him. Yeah. And I suppose this is where this, this episode also is where we hear about the fact that Northmore is being... He's trying to be bought by this large American nuclear power company called uh, the Fusion Corporation of Fusion. Kansas, That's right. which in itself raises a lot of questions. 
Indeed. Feed into Sorry, a I, I Commons inquiry. Because they want to know why such a massive company will be interested in a low-level nuclear waste plant such as Northmore. So a lot of this episode is about this inquiry in which Craven and the character of Godbolt, the union guy, are yeah. called to give evidence. Yeah. Now, is this the one? Is this the one where Godbolt confesses to yeah. Craven about his involvement? Yeah, I think it is. I think there's something else we've missed as well, because I think just before this, we need to point out that Darius Jedper's character fesses up to um, to Bob Peck, that he ha- he helped create, if not started, Gaia. Right? He did. And he did it. He did it because Jimmy Carter, when he was in office, was concerned about the proliferation of nuclear energy being spread around the world. And he wanted to create a strong movement against it because he thought CND was like wishy-washy. Yeah. So this is why Gaia got formed. That's and of course, it. Gaia becomes the organisation that Craven's daughter so passionately gets involved with. So all these links suddenly appear all over the place. Mm. You know? And of course, at this point, before this point as well, I think Jedberg is talking also about how dodgy the idea of this fusion company coming to take over the plant or to take over Northmore, potentially take over Northmore is because again, it's this, and again, it's this interesting idea that's been created within this. Again, the depths of this series is incredible because it's this idea of private companies, private, probably, you know, publicly shareholder companies taking over what should be, should be government-run entities. And I think it's a real key point that's been made in here. It's like, who's in control of this fucking stuff? You know, is it countries, is it governments and countries, or is it private business? You know, huge huge point, I think, they're trying to make within it. Definitely, yeah. So this House of Commons inquiry, forgot to mention before, it's, it's looking into you know, this takeover and whether they're going to approve it. Because obviously there's been some controversy with Northmore, given that the the, the dead bodies were there. Yeah, yeah. During the inquiry, Bennett, the head of Northmore, admits quite openly that they did deliberately drown the people that broke in. Under the NAIR scheme, you should have informed the police, did you? No, we did not inform the police. Under the site licence, issued by the Nuclear Installations Inspectorate. You should have informed both the AEA and the Health and Safety Executive. We did not inform either of those bodies. Then whom did you inform? We informed the Ministry of Defence. The plutonium we were storing was the property of the MOD. We felt they were the only people we were authorised to communicate with. So he's sort of indicating that the plutonium is owned by them. Yes. Yeah. Again, it's this murky. I didn't need to go to the police. I didn't need to go to these other authorities. I only needed to contact the uh, the MOD. It's only the MOD. And it's almost like, that'll shut you up. Yeah. A bit like the labyrinth that Northmore is. There's a labyrinth of, like, cover-up and espionage going on around this plutonium, you know, yeah. which is incredible. But I think this is near again to the scene where Godbolt and Craven speak to each other, and Godbolt confesses, doesn't he, that... Even though he's been this union leader, he had all this pressure put on him 
because he was trying to look after his his miners, wasn't he? Because the the mines are actually under Northmore, aren't they? Yes, that's correct. So, so these these old mines are under Northmore. And when they were when they were not used anymore, the government okay. wanted them to store stuff yeah. in them, yeah, some yeah. secret stuff. When they no longer needed them, they sold them the mines to to Northmore, and he yeah. was part of the package because he. He needed to look after the men who were still working yeah. on the mines. Yeah, it was like a that. deal anyway. to look after his workforce. He was yeah. protecting his workforce, so he was yeah. thought he was doing a good job for his workforce as a trade union leader. It's the end of the road for me when this gets out. How did he get involved in the first place? Started back in the 60s. Ministry of Defence took over the mines, started building storage facilities, needed miners to maintain them, someone in the union to look after the miners. I were picked, signed the Official Secrets Act, and that part of my job wasn't mentioned outside of the Executive Committee. Over the years, Northmore became an underground city. Then came the defence cuts, changes in strategy. MOD didn't need Northmore anymore, so they leased it to Bennett. I were part of the deal. I suddenly found myself dealing with a nuclear waste plant. That must have made life difficult. We had a national executive paranoid about nuclear power, and I were now wading knee deep in the stuff. But he says to Craven, and this is a bit of a yeah, it confuses me a little bit here because Craven suspects Godbolt knows more than he is letting on because he he picks up on this thing he says during a TV interview where Godbolt's being asked about the murder of Emma, and he I- says she was killed by mistake and what he goes on to she explain she was murdered by mistake he said so he goes on to explain that they were after craven but for a different reason yes the reason that they were trying to kill craven was that they thought that he led the party yeah from gaia down into the mines i'm so glad you've mentioned this lee because it was something that was playing on my mind too because if I was craving over this scene, I'd be fucking furious with this guy. Of course, yeah. Because he basically says, doesn't he? He says to Craven, he says, well, I said it was you. I said it was more likely to be you that led them down the mine. And then they knew they you were the chief suspect, right? Well, you're an experienced caver, Craven, so I told them that, blah, blah, blah. And then what does he say soon after that? I'll leave that to you, Lee. Go on. Yeah. So you're right, Dave. He's basically put he's put the gunman onto crazy. He set him up. He yeah. set him up. Now, but what I didn't understand here is that the gunman should have probably shot both of them, shouldn't he? Because yeah. they need to get rid of Emma as well. She led yeah. the party. But almost to rub salt into the fucking wounds. A few seconds later, he says, "I'm not all bloody a sellout. I was the one that led them in there. Yeah, <laughs> he was the fucker <laughs> who led them in." You know, I would want to throttle him. I would have wanted to dive at his throat at that point. Yeah. But Craven doesn't do that. You no, know? He, doesn't. He, he, he goes a bit mad, doesn't he? But he doesn't yeah. try to attack him. It's, but it did confuse me that. I thought that was a bit of a leap, that. Would they really have been that interested about who led them down there? Well, in a way, because the moment he says that, you kind of think that. But when you see how... Just how fucking tricky it is to get it to get down to the hot cell right at the bottom. Fair enough, yeah. It is a fucking one thing that struck me was watching it was like, how the hell did they get back up unless they knew how to use utilize the lift, of course, at the other end. Because when they're going down 
the God Bolt way, it's like impossible. It's all I'm sailing 200 feet down here. I'm sailing another 200 <laughs> feet down there. But yeah. So, so God Bolt does try to redeem himself by saying, I'll lead you down there. I'll, I'll help yeah. you break in. Yeah. So the three of them, Godbolt, Craven and Jedberg, start on this mission to break into Northmore the same way the Gaia team did. And uh, Godbolt takes them to the entrance to Northmore. So he takes them through this labyrinth of caves and leaves them at the entrance. And uh, it does seem very easy to break in. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's a, maybe a little bit of a flaw. That said, though, it does leave you that impression that it's hundreds, nay, thousands of feet down into a yeah. labyrinth that, you know, unless you really wanted to get down there, forget it. But I know what you mean. It's like they've sort of ducked and dived the security pretty easy mm. to get down to this particular place that Godbolt knows how to get in safely, if you like. But, but the authorities and Grogan, who's the head of Fusion, and Bennett. Yes. They know the coming, don't they? Yes, they do. Someone's let it slip. Indeed. Uh, so they let them break in with the intention of drowning them. Yeah. In the same way they did with the Gaia team. But that yeah. fails. Yeah. And they eventually come across this cave, which has the hot cell in. Yes. But the hot cell being... How would you describe a hot cell? Well, it's it's where the plutonium is. Stored. Yeah, the hot cell is where the it's it's plutonium stored, so it's literally like fucking super radioactive, and don't the fuck go there. <laughs> well, Can there's I been just... an accident there, hasn't there? That's yes, what, there's been what a... we find out. We see dead bodies lying about the dead North Pole security about. stuff. Can I just Hamzat's roll back seat. slightly, Lee? Do you mind if I just roll back slightly? I just wanted to mention that before they get to the hot cell, they arrive at this incredible uh, so they're going down the the layers of this labyrinth in Northmore, further and further down and they reach this point where there's this incredible kind of house it's you know bunker, isn't it? building bunker down below with and it's full of stuff it's full oh, of this food. is one of my favorite scenes this oh it's wonderfully isn't it it's a yeah. wonderful scene and it's full of like ornaments and all sorts of strange things no clocks though apparently this is the interesting no. thing because at this point now godbolt's done one and left them to it and it's just darius jedber and ronald craven the two of them together and they they stop and have a, a kind of a nice moment you know a well, nice a hour or two meal don't they, they have a candle meal jedber makes a, a lobster omelette <laughs> down there and they're discussing what it's all about and of course we we come to the we come to the realization that it was built in the 60s because of the paranoia of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. So, it's li- again, it's linked with all this amazing nuclear paranoia, which is a brilliant moment in, in the it's series. A, I, I mean, um, the writing there, what an amazing scene to put in. Perfectly. You know, how did he come up with that idea? It's brilliant. Because you know, it? it's, it's like from a different programme, isn't it? That they arrive in this refuge of this bunker and it's like a treasure trove of fine wine fine art yeah. sophisticated <laughs> food Jesberg describes it as a doomsday equivalent of Harrods a doomsday equivalent of Harrods and that's it it's because when Jedber looks at the wine you can't believe it with all the wine <laughs> no incredible you know it's like Keith Floyd's heaven you know in this fucking room you know what's the most interesting thing about this place 
No locks. No clocks. Time stands still. Real freaky feeling, huh? And there's a plaque on the wall that says it was built by a condominium in 1962. Whoever that may be. You're the Cuban Missile Crisis. A lot of people got shit scared that year. Braven's eager to get going, isn't he? But yeah. Jedberg's in his absolute element. He doesn't want to leave. He says, why, yeah. why do you want to leave? He says, we've got all this. Let's cool. enjoy it. Fantastic. But you know what is one of my favourite shots in that is when they're leaving it. And there's just this towering statue of Christ. Yeah. Which looks really frightening in the shadows. And yeah. just as they pass it, the camera slowly pushes in on its face, which is really chilling. You know, it's like a shot from The Exorcist or something. Yeah. Again, it's all about this is the thing about kind of religious imagery in it, supernatural in it. And if I can just roll back a little bit just before they leave to go on the mission to Northmore, the three of them. Yeah. Um, uh, there's this beautiful moment where Jedberg comes over to see Craven and Craven's sort of sat looking down at a particular point and Jedberg says, is this where it happened? And Craven says, no, it's down. It was there. And when they go there, they look and they see that there's this natural spring. When, of course, Craven has already drank from this natural spring that's appeared just where she was killed. And just Jedberg, out of nowhere. Uh, just out of nowhere. This natural spring occurs and Jedberg kind of sees this as this almost like religious moment, really, you know, like mm. rebirth moment, which I think is a beautiful element of the, of the whole series is that in a kind of weird way, nature will crawl its way back. Yeah. So I know. suppose at this point we should talk about the Gaia hypothesis, which is a key element of what Kennedy Martin was trying to yeah says this there's this book called the Gaia hypothesis I think it was written yeah. in about 1979 that's right yeah and Kennedy Martin got really into this and he wanted to make more of it yeah in the series but he got he was made to tone it down a bit but basically what it's saying is that the, the planet will always repair itself it will always yeah repel an enemy such as man yes so it's this battle between nature and man and yeah. Emma tells her dad this yeah, because she sees him, how desperate he is to not avenge her, but to try and get some justice for her. And she say, no, dad, you don't need to. We might lose this time, but eventually the planet yeah. will win. The planet will win. Yeah. She, and she, 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 she introduces this um, story of the black flowers, doesn't she? I was she? just going to say the black flowers. Yeah. I feel so much is left undone. Other people will continue the job. You'll be with me. I still don't understand. Dad, it's happened before, you know. Millions of years ago, when the Earth was cold, it looked as if life on the planet would cease to exist. But black flowers began to grow, multiplying across its face till the entire landscape was covered in blooms. Slowly, the blackness of the flowers sucked in the heat of the sun, and life began to evolve again. Is the power of Gaia. It'll take more than a black flower to save us this time. Following when they've discovered this hot cell, Jedberg promptly nicks all the plutonium, doesn't he? Oh, it's amazing. It's it sticks amazing. in a Harrods bag. Yeah, it's right? amazing. And then they get confronted by Northmore security. It's the gunfight, isn't there? Yeah, so they get <laughs> confronted by Northmore security who've been expecting yeah. them. Yeah. And um 
the flooding didn't work. No. And suddenly they turn up in Hamzat suits and machine guns, and there's this mad shootout. But Craven and Jedberg escape. Jedberg's got the plutonium, and they split up with Jedberg telling Craven to meet him in Scotland or to find him in Scotland if he manages to get out. And then there's this other bizarre scene where Craven finds himself in this room full of dusty ancient telephones yeah. as he's trying to escape. And he's trying everyone to try and get a signal or a line. And finally finds one and he's yeah. ringing this number. He doesn't know where he's ringing. Yeah. <laughs> but then it cuts to this policewoman who's yeah. going down into a basement. You know, she's heard this phone ringing somewhere. So which phone it is. Again. Yeah, so she goes into another dusty room and finds another ancient telephone, answers it with, hello, Downing Street. Okay. And Craven just screams, get me Pendleton! <laughs> and episode ends, credits roll. Yeah. Downing Street? Get me Pendleton! Again, that was a brilliant scene. Brilliant scene. Totally brilliant. So now we, the final episode, Fusion. Which is amazing. Yeah, so it opens with Craven in a military hospital. Somehow Pendleton has got him out yeah. and managed to rescue him. And Pendleton's there looking at him contemptuously. Craven's in bed. And he's been exposed to massive doses of radiation. And yeah. Pendleton basically informs him that he's slowly dying, very coldly. And... He's trying to find out where Jedberg's gone and what he's planning to do with the plutonium. And I think uh, Craven puts him off the scent a bit. And Craven eventually escapes from the hospital with the help of Clem, drives up to Scotland where we see a slowly deteriorating Jedberg who's yes. valiantly playing golf. Yeah, he's in Clem uh, Eagles playing golf. Yeah, he's, playing, he's having a laugh playing golf, but you can see that he's not doing too well. He nearly passes out, but still sinks the putt, which I think yeah, is fantastic. That's right, he does. <laughs> and his plan is to attend a long-standing engagement he has at this NATO conference, which is being held at Glen Eagles. In, in the hotel, that's right. Yeah, yeah, where he is a guest speaker, as is Grogan, the head of the American Fusion Corporation. Fusion. I'm going to leave you to explain this scene coming up now, but I just want to say that this is brilliant on every level this scene yeah so they're there to talk about nuclear energy and the developments etc and grogan goes on first and he delivers this chilling speech about the power horrible control over others that nuclear power gives to those who own it and he's talking about leaving the planet and invading space using nuclear-powered rockets and all this, that and the other. He's clearly a megalomaniac. And he sells the crowd this quite scary thing, doesn't it? But they're all into it. You know, they're all lapping it up. I foresee within the next hundred years the beginning of man as an interplanetary being, a celestial warrior, and furthermore, a solar empire for the United States of America and her allies. Whereas Jedberg then gets up and he gives a great counter speech, calling out Grogan's ambition and mocking his positive spin on it all, mm. uh, 
denounces the proliferation of nuclear energy and nuclear weaponry. And to emphasise his points, he takes out the two bars of plutonium, which he, he took with him, and he brings them together, <laughs> causing a catastrophic critical accident to anybody within 10 yards, which includes Grogan. It so is. now Grogan has been irradiated. Well, what I love as well about this scene is before he does that as well, he holds them up. But as soon as they, as soon as all these fucking generals and colonels and and potential arms dealers and warmongers in this fucking audience see this, they shit themselves and just run for cover, trampling over each other yeah. to try and get out because they know what he's got in his hands. Well, it's interesting. And Grogan doesn't run. No, Grogan he's doesn't. just too stunned. Grogan is just sat there. And it's that brilliant moment where he brings the two uh, the, the two pieces of uh, plutonium together. And this huge spark of light hits the air. There's this energy, and you know full well, Grogan's at it now as well. Well, does Grogan realise it? Because he's remarkably normal after it. It's so odd. Now, this is the thing. This is the big flaw to me. It is a flaw. Because the very next scene, you have the scene where you've got the Foreign Office Minister in the same room with Grogan and Bennett and a couple of cronies. And the plutonium in the suitcase, which he looks at, right? And Grogan's there in his dinner suit, like he's not, doesn't give a shit. Exactly. Doesn't give a shit. And you're thinking, oh, have we misread this? And at first I'm thinking, have I missed something here? Have I missed something? None of the others seem to acknowledge it either, do they? None of the others seem to acknowledge it. He's got this box. Okay, yeah, there's a suitcase, plutonium, thanks very much. And Grogan's there, and I'm thinking, like you'd be bothered about changing into a fucking dinner suit and bow tie when you've just been exposed to like fucking the highest level of plutonium that you can yeah. irradiate all your organs and you just say, oh, well, I'm having dinner. Here's nice brandy. You know, <laughs> it's so odd, that scene. And you're thinking, oh, it must have been like a, it must have been a stunt. It wasn't really the plutonium. That's what I was mm. thinking at that point. Yeah. But of course, we find out at the very end, it was. The real yeah, deal. He's fucked. He's, he's fucked. fucked. When you see him at the end. In this episode, we, we also get, I think we find out the answer to the biggest mystery of the whole show, which is why was Northmore producing plutonium and on whose orders? And on which whose I have to say, Dave, I'm still not fully clear about. Bennett says originally that it was the government. Yeah. But we find out that it seems to be Grogan's because. Grogan was worried that his takeover was going to be blocked by the government. So he tricked, well, through his contacts, he tricked Jedberg into going into Northmore to nick it with right. the plan that he would somehow get it back from Jedberg. Yeah. So whose is it? Is it is it Grogan's? Um, is it the government's? Again, great ambiguities. You know, Maybe this is a trait of uh, Kennedy Martin because, in a very different way, the 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 end of the Italian job, it, you've got the gold slipping down the bo- bottom of the bus, and you know, and then Michael Caine famously oh, yeah. goes, "Okay, boys, I've got a plan." Okay, and <laughs> we leave it there. So in a way, at the end of this, it's something left in the air for us to sort of figure out for ourselves. I think. Yeah. But I suspect the idea behind those scenes are of this complicity between governments and private business. And I think this is the idea. I think this is mm. the whole idea behind it. 
there's a lot of situations in this world where governments lease out, you know, difficult things to private business. Yeah. I think this is part of it. So they're almost letting them be mavericks, that the British government is almost letting letting Grogan be a maverick to do his own thing, even though mm. even though it should be literally a military the whole thing should be a Ministry of Defence thing, shouldn't it? Yeah. From start to finish. But that's the great point that they're making in it is that is that these private businesses are getting hold of some of the most dangerous pieces of material that the world has ever known or understood or partially understood. Because let's be honest, we only partially understand its potential, don't we? Yeah. And I think that's the whole complexity of it, really. Jedberg understands that better than because because he's had years in the CIA. He's seen so much shit going down. He's seen governments flip flopping. You know, it's scathing about Carter because he said that Carter flip flopped from being this anti-nuclear thing to switching right over and wanting to nuclearize again. Probably because of what, and again, that's a that's a nod to the the um, the the changing of the guard in Iran, wasn't it? If you remember in 79, Carter had all those difficulties in Iran, didn't he? Because the Shah of Iran was overtaken by the Ayatollah Khomeini. And it became the, the Middle East, that part of the Middle East became very, very difficult and dangerous again. So that's a neat, yeah. what happens then? That's a kick. That's a knee-jerk reaction to to governments. So oh, let's let's make sure we've got like plenty of defence here and make sure we've got our nuclear defence in order because they could be fucking trouble, mm-hmm. you know. They could maybe put a, a big threat in Israel. Again, very, very, nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah. But I thought I had got an explanation to this question, right, where because Harcourt in the last episode, he thinks he's got it all sewn up now and he's quite confidently passing this file to a government minister and tells him that it contains all the evidence they need to convict Northmore of illegally producing the plutonium that broke every rule in the nuclear handbook. Yeah. But to his astonishment, the minister says that they knew all about it from day one. Yeah. The minister played by the brilliant Jeremy Child. Jeremy Child's great. Yeah. He, he, again, again, he's got, he oozes re-smog. <laughs> yeah. Northmore was producing plutonium illegally, contrary to the Nuclear Installations Act of 1968, the NPT, and every other international agreement. They are breaking every law in the nuclear rule book. Northmore was producing very small quantities of plutonium by a secret laser process, which was classified as experimental. I knew about it, and so did a number of my colleagues. You knew about it? From day one. An experimental station with a defence component is not subject to any of the restrictions you've just quoted. I don't understand. I mean, if you knew what caused the contamination, why was I brought in to investigate it? Because the Americans became suspicious. So my involvement was purely part of a deception plan? Yes, if you like. But you must have known that I would find out what was going on in the end. Yes, of course I did. I just thought you might take a little longer to do it, that's all. And you might have used slightly less unorthodox methods of breaching the mine than the likes of Craven and Jedberg. I will not withdraw that report. Well, that's up to the Cabinet, but I'd like to suggest that it's your duty to get the plutonium back, since you were ultimately responsible for its removal. Yeah, so I thought then we have found out that it was the government's plutonium, but later on in the episode, we do hear Grogan talking about it as if it's his plutonium, and, and he explains that... Well, I think Craven actually 
finds out that Jedberg was used to nick it so Grogan could get it back. But Jedberg says he knew that anyway, but he's got the last laugh because he's still got the plutonium. Yeah. So this, this does lead us actually to the sort of final scene where Jedberg's escaped and he's holding himself up in this farmhouse in Scotland. Yeah, we need to mention as well that Jedberg ends up killing four of his own CIA. Oh, yeah, on the way, yes. On the way, so he's just you know, getting out of there. It's quite a good scene, really, because he goes, he's just killed three of his own men. He goes, and you hear this voice in the distance, there's another one. Oh, that's four. He's done four of his own. Yeah, so Kanakan Lodge is where Jedberg is holed up. And it's a place we actually stayed in, didn't we, Dave? In 2005, we went on one of our annual trips to Scotland and we yeah. stayed in that magnificent house. When I saw that, uh, that episode, funnily enough, I saw that episode many years ago. This was like maybe the, it was a one-off watching of the last episode, but I had watched it with my housemate at the time a few years earlier but it was before we'd stayed at Kanakan Lodge. Yeah. Right? So it didn't twig. And then when I saw it, I went, it's Kanakan Lodge. I couldn't believe it that we yeah. literally stayed there the year before. And it's a, it looks amazing, doesn't it? Yeah. It's such an amazing place. It's a pity you can't, you can't seem to rent it out anymore. Do you know what, mate? If we could rent that out, that would really encourage me. I'd be so keen to go on a trip with everybody again mm. if we could if we could go to Kanakan Lodge we should also mention Dave that we made a film whilst we're at Kanakan Lodge called The Black Monk of Kanakan Lodge Indeed. great you can book. see on YouTube just a bit of an off-the-cuff idea that we did whilst we're there it's great though isn't it it's a, yeah. great, it's a great little film I yeah think. yeah great fun and it's such an incredible house to, to stay in for a week it's in Perthshire for yeah. the benefit of the listeners. Superstition. What a place. Wonderful place. Hunting lodge. Fantastic. Not that we did any hunting. No, no, no. Weren't even a hunting for girls. Oh, shit, you can't, <laughs> you say, can't use any. that expression anymore. <laughs> Jesus, can't say that. Just a bunch of fellas. Do you want to come to a Keeley? Yeah, and yeah. just because we've been talking about homoerotic Disney. stuff, there was nothing homoerotic about them holidays, was there, Dave? Nothing at all. It's just like one man in a kilt going, do you want to go to a Cayley? Yeah, sure. We all had Who's our going? separate bedrooms. Who's going? Just you and me, son. Just you and me. <laughs> Craven manages to track him down. Which I think is quite interesting because he goes, he gets a tip off to Glen Eagles, doesn't he? And he opens his locker and he it finds his lunchbox. Yeah. And on the, <laughs> the bottom of it, it says something guest house. Can't remember yeah. the name guest house which is obviously a big lead to for for Craven to to pursue. Yeah, so he must go to the guest house. God knows how he finds out where exactly he moved on to next. But he turns up at uh, this big cottage or lodge. Well, I know but I'm thinking that that's what that's supposed to be. So that no, the box he finds is the lunch box at the guest house he was staying at. Oh, the stairs he was staying in. And, and, you know, he has that ah. row with the landlady. Ah, uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. I may have missed that bit, little bit there because I've, yeah. that's where I skipped slightly. But the thing is, I see. Well, he's gone to the, he's gone back to the guest house to see the landlady, and she's giving him a tip off. To I'm assuming yes. that's what's happened. Well, he says, I think when Craven turns up, he says that he's bought the place. 
That's right. He does. Yeah. So anyway, they both know they're dying. You know, they're sort of quite enjoying the last moments. They're getting pissed and that. Uh, but they're waiting. Singing Willie Nelson again. Singing Willie Nelson again, yeah. And Jedberg's tried to get this uh, this enemy to come and kill him, but th- that doesn't. Oh happen. yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> called Hernandez. Yeah. It's Hernandez. He says, "This is where I'll be. Yeah. You know, if you want your revenge, come and get it now." Three fucking miles. And I'm <laughs> fucking He's not going to come from Salvador all the way to the other side of the world. Earthshire. You know what you are, Craven? You're something special. Even freeze dried from some earlier epoch. Just waiting for this to happen. Waiting for what to happen? All this. The confrontation between good and evil. Which side are you on? Side of the angels, boy. Always have been. Jedberg. You are not, and never will be, on the side of the angels. There are angels who will stand by me. St. Michael, for instance. Then you do believe in Gaia. As an idea, what? As an idea. I mean, do I believe that the Earth Goddess will defend itself against all dangers? Including man. Man will always win against nature. Jedberg explains that he's turned the plutonium into a bomb. Yes, indeed. And he sort of is tempted to detonate it, but he then realises that's a bit harsh on Scotland. So yeah, yeah. he sort of abandoned that idea, but he tells Craven where it is. Yeah. Craven immediately phones Harcourt. It's at the bottom of a lock. Tells him that he's at the bottom of the lock. Uh, you better go and get it. And um, I think from that bit, they trace the call and the the Secret Service turn up. Jedberg puts up a brave, valiant fight, takes Indeed. a few down with him, goes yeah, out with a bang. Up. Craven just sits there waiting to be arrested. But well, you, I think you Craven's waiting to be assassinated, really, not arrested. I think he's waiting. He's had, That's it. Yeah, that's a good point, that, because... It, he thinks he's going to be killed, but the guy says, no, we're not going to kill you. You're you're on our side. And he screams, doesn't he? I'm not on your side. Yes, it's but brilliant. He's yeah. sort of lost at that point, isn't he? Yeah. And uh, it cuts to the scene where they go to collect the plutonium and Harcourt and Pendleton are there. There's this like narration of a letter that Harcourt has wrote to Clem, Zoe Wanamaker, Yes. In which he mentions that the last they saw of Craven was that he was stood on a hill watching what's happening. And as they leave, Craven just screams at Emma at the top of his voice, doesn't he, whilst he stood on this hill? Yeah, it's really brilliant. It's a brilliant finale. And then it cuts to the black flowers growing on the hillside. And then it ends. Indeed. But I suppose this this is probably the bit where Kennedy Martin wanted to turn Bob Peck into a tree. Right. right. This was genuinely his original idea because it fed into the green man thing and the wow. guy hypothesis. Well, that might have been brilliant, though. It would have been. I wish he'd done that. To have that crazy supernatural element right at the end would have been amazing. Yeah, I suppose it would have made a little bit of sense in that Dave Craven had just died where he was on that hill. And then, you know, nature sort of takes over and grows over him, grows through him, and this, that, and the other. And 
and a tree forms. But I think the way Kennedy Martin explained it was that the tree was like the shape or the silhouette of Craven's body lying there, mm. right, which I can't fully imagine, to be honest. But I think that would have been a really good idea. Uh, but it was vetoed by the cast and the crew. What's, what, bit, what's good about that? Out. What I like about that final scene, though, as well, though, is it kind of ties things up in a nutshell quite nicely. It is well done. And, and the Donny who, who runs Fusion, you see that him overseeing everything as, as the plutonium has been picked up by the helicopter. And it's been, I mean, kind of, I was thinking that's kind of risky what they're doing with it because it's, it's attached to a helicopter on a very long sort of rope. Yeah. Being glided through the sky. It's like, and it's, it has been made into a bomb. It's got some explosive exactly. attached to it as well. It's got some explosive attached to it. Surely yeah. a, a big fall, a big drop. Mind you, Jebba said, it, you know, that this is the detonator. And it was like he'd, he'd made a, pl- a plutonium bullet or something. Yeah, I, mean, it, I think he was shoot. hoping Craven would fire it. Would fire it and just blow yeah. the whole of the, of the northeast of Scotland to smithereens or whatever. So it's kind of interesting. But what he, but what you do see is is um, the dodgy fusion uh, geezer. What's his name again? His name is Grogan. Grogan, the, that, that Donny. He, you can see that he is now developing serious signs of radiation sickness, which yeah. is pointed out by Harcourt. Harcourt yeah, and he's left so, yeah. You know, yeah. saying, yeah, I think Grogan's getting it now, you know. Like, and, <laughs> and it explains it, but it still leaves that mystery why that scene was so calm. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you're just, right. It really did not spoil it, but I couldn't understand it. I mean, maybe it was, again, Kennedy Martin trying to throw us off maybe, and not make things predictable. It, it's kind of a maybe a bit of a flaw, but... Or possibly, Dave, it's... The irony of someone like Grogan not understanding what nuclear quite possibly yeah. nuclear uh, material does to a person. Yeah. He's a businessman. He's a yeah. He's not a scientist. He doesn't really fucking give a shit. But then again, he kind of I don't know because he kind of knew when Jebba was there. He did, to be honest. Yeah. And, and Jebba does explain, doesn't he? Just before yeah. he brings them yeah. together, he says. Uh, 400 rads to anyone within 10 yards. Get it while it's hot. Yeah, exactly. It's brilliant, man. But maybe there's a kind of arrogance. That's the, But that's what the implication is in that scene. It's like an arrogance that it won't happen to me, won't affect me. I'll be all right because I'm, I'm so rich and I'm so wealthy and I can have the finest meals and the finest this and the finest that. Yeah. yeah. It's still strange, though. I, I can, but then again, there's quite a few strange scenes in the, in the whole series. Mm. And it doesn't, to me, it doesn't spoil it as an overall piece of work. No, I think no. that's the idea. I think the idea behind it is that it has got some very quirky, unusual things going on within it. Like like the fact that Craven didn't get aggressive. In fact, to be fair, there's not really one scene in the whole thing where Craven gets aggressive or violent towards anybody. No. It's kind of not in his nature. His skill is being... Is being compassionate and gentle yeah. with people. So even that thing when you, I would have, well, it's a plant one on Godbolt, you know, mm. when he's saying, well, you know, I said it was you, lad, because you, you're a caver. But actually, it was me that took your daughter down there. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
didn't want to fucking chin the bastard. Oh, God. I've, I've got to mention, I've got to mention my favourite characters in it are Harcourt and Pendleton. Oh, yeah, they're great. Dave. I just love them. They make an amazing double act, and I'm a bit disappointed they didn't actually have a spin-off series. Because it, I mean, it, it looks like they've been borrowed from Yes Minister. They're these really sort of Whitehall English types, really cold and smarmy. And uh, the way they're portrayed by the actors is amazing. And they oh, have some great lines. And there's a great scene where Jedberg's sort of taking the piss out of them. Yeah. And he's saying, oh, I hear Heseltine's cutting the defence budget. Oh, yeah. Breakfast? Oh, yes. Uh, large malt on the rocks. Black coffee with honey. There's no need to play the Texan, Jedberg. We can take it as red. Your history, Harcourt. Heseltine's cutting intelligence by 15%. We're not funded by the MOD, but by the Prime Minister's office. And the Arts Council. Mr Pendleton has us down as a band of strolling players. And the Commonwealth? It's professional historians. And the GLC? A lesbian cooperative. Frickin' frack. There's elements of it where it is a dark comedy. And I think that's what yeah. Harcourt and Pendleton are in there to do, really. Yeah. There's that other line when they're in, they're in Glen Eagles, Pendleton and Harcourt, after Jedberg's been killed, I think, and they're waiting for room service and Pendleton brings this big tray of stuff. Yeah. Harcourt <laughs> says something like, I thought we'd ordered oat cakes. <laughs> Again, there's a kind of homoerotic thing with them too as well. I mean, maybe I've read into that too much, but... There's a scene when they're in the room together and Harcourt is in his towering robe doing his hair like this and Pendleton's <laughs> just got his shirt a little bit undone. You know what I mean? There's a kind of... It's because it's it, what it suggests to me is like is like public school boys, probably been bum boys at Eton, but they also like the girls too. They just don't give yeah. a shit. They well, don't give a shit. And they, Pendleton's they, really just like really sort of uh, creepy when he comes across Clem. Really yeah, yeah. sort of disrespectful to a yeah. leery as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, I think that's the great thing with it. It's like there's a lot of these kind of ambiguous characters throughout it. Mm. They're obviously the two sort of stellar outstanding ones in it. But there's there's so many figures in it that uh, you kind of throughout the series. I mean, like probably the big McGovern. McGuffin? Is that what uh, Hitchcock called it? Someone mm-hmm. who you think... A character that you think is probably central to dodgy dealings and espionage, and they had nothing to do with it. And that's the, uh, you know, Bob Peck's boss uh, as the police officer, the guy who's the, the police officer from uh, American Wolf in London. John great Woodbine. Man. John yeah. Woodbine. Great in it. And I was thinking all the way through, he's 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 linked somehow. Right. With, yeah. Uh, so he he disappears, doesn't he? Like he just don't disappears. Yeah. He just disappears. This is it. You're kind of thinking. He's definitely involved in Northmore. There's something going on here. Mm. And him and Godbolt are in it together. There's something else going on. Yeah, because it's interesting you say that, because at the beginning, when we were talking about that scene where Godbolt's putting pressure on Craven to drop this investigation, it seems like Godbolt's got the backing of Craven's boss there. Indeed. Indeed. Woodbine's character. This is the great thing. And I think that is a... Very clever writing technique that he's done that deliberately because he's made us want to think in that kind of Hitchcockian or Agatha Christie way. He's made us think he's involved somehow. 
Mm. But he's not. He's just a copper. He's, he's a good guy. He is. He's a good, a good guy. guy who cares about his. Uh, he cares about Craven. He yeah, and he, he, he he's not a by the book boss either. He lets him sort of do this his own investigation on the side. He does as long as he keeps it discreet. Hello, Ronnie. How are you? Okay. Did you call into the house? Yes, we tidied up a bit. Sorted things out. Well, we got Macroon before he got you. Why did you leave the marksman on sight? Jesus Christ, Ronnie, he was going to kill you. You gave me your word. Ronnie, I knew exactly what I was doing. We saved your life. Perhaps you didn't want it saved. He turns out to be a great boss, isn't he? Mm. Because he actually knows that his his abilities of uh, interrogation and interview get great results. Mm. That's why he lets him go and, in. And he feels, you know, he needs this as a catharsis to... Of course, yeah, that, without doubt. You know, to help his grief. To help his grief with his daughter. But he, right up until he sort of leaves this, the picture completely, I'm thinking he's somehow involved. And I'm sure that was... That was a mechanism used by the writer to make the audience think like that, which is what I think Hitchcock calls a McGovern or a McGuffin. This thing that is not really relevant. Well, isn't isn't a McGuffin the thing Indiana Jones always goes after? Yeah, he's a plot device. Yeah. The plot device being that you're thinking he's involved when he's nothing to do with it. So it's leading you in one direction. I think it's... it's is a that very, not the uh, Luton bus, Dave? Uh, well... In the Luton bus. Is that, that's it, different. That's like a fake scare, isn't it? The it's story? a scare, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. The Luton bus is where you think something's going to happen. That comes from the film Cat People, doesn't it? I think where, so. Yeah. Where you think suddenly something terribly dramatic is going to happen and it's not, just a bus appears. So I've got to mention, Dave, that one of the actors in the show who plays the head of, the ruthless head of Northmore Security. Oh, yes, uh, I know. Brian Croucher. I know. <laughs> Love Brian Croucher. He was like in every show when you were a kid, wasn't he? Yeah. Again, really good at playing heavies, you know. Yeah. Just it's usually in the Sweeney as a heavy. Pain in the arse dads. Yeah, yeah, pain in the arse dads. Grumpy or semi violent parents, yeah. They're both inside. We've got them. They've got the plutonium, for Christ's sake. They're in the service lift. I thought it was jammed. They moved the body. They're on their way up. You'll have to cut the power. Can't cut the power. There's a backup system. Leave it to me. I'm just looking what he's been in. He's in Out. He was in Lucky Man. Oh, Lucky Man. Oh, wow. EastEnders. Yeah, he was in, he was in one of the main characters in EastEnders, wasn't he, I think? I mean, the series is packed with great performances by great people. And a young Tim McKinnery, Captain Tim- Darling. Again, Tim Plays Tim- Emma's he's- boyfriend. We haven't really discussed Tim McKinnery that much, which which is interesting because he's a kind of another good plot figure because he kind of pushes forward the idea of what what Emma's doing. And you're kind of thinking initially, like, is he somehow involved in her demise? Because he seems so cold. He doesn't seem like he, he gives is a shit. horrible to Craven, isn't he? He's fucking horrible to Craven. Doesn't seem to give a shit that she's dead. Craven's noticed a also a nightie on his bed thinking well he's that's he knows that's not emma's he's certainly yeah, moved on he's just moved on like that like that mm. 
she's barely cold in the she's not even been buried and he, yeah. it's um he's fucking seems like a sleazeball but actually he's trying to t- he's trying to tip craven off he does actually tell craven doesn't he that emma was thought there was a hot cell in northmore correct um, but he's, he's also he's also a police informer. He described himself as a political activist, but he's not yeah. in the into the same stuff Emma's into. No, and there's some crossover, but he had nothing to do with Northmore. No. Um, but one interesting thing I've thought of, Dave, is that after Emma did this really, what would have been really traumatic event, escaping from Northmore and having all your friends, yeah, yeah. Killed, she doesn't seem to do any of that. Does she? <laughs> We're really picking holes in it now, aren't we? I know. But well, I mean, she's like dead so cheerful. Good. I mean, she's only on screen for a bit before she gets shot, but she's like really happy. Go lucky, it seems. Not a care in the world. And I'm thinking to, and I also thought to myself, how the fuck did she get out of there? How did they get out? Yeah. You know, it's like it's like unbelievable. But then Maybe again, it went the same way. Uh, but exactly. Raven went, went and found that room with all them telephones. <laughs> that's exactly it but it's kind of like they go through this labyrinthine hell to get there and then they just go up in a lift and they, yeah. you would have thought well there'd be people at the top of the just there waiting for them at the top of the lift you know yeah 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 and and the same with emma you know but like you say if she does seem dead chipper she's just lost like a load of people uh yeah so it is a little bit flawed in that respect you can forgive it because it's so it's so compelling, really. Yeah. And it kind of the I mean there's no surprise that Bob Peck won the best actor at the, the T V BAFTAs for that year. Yeah, it won loads of BAFTAs, didn't it? Loads of BAFTAs. And it's I mean, it's always it's always dead high in the polls of as the top in the top ten dramas of all uh, time. I think it come number three in one of them where Boys and the Black stuff was number two, and The Sopranos was number one. Wow, that's um, that's incredible. Yeah. But I think in this day and age where we, it's all about this box set viewing and streaming things, you know, I just think anybody gets a chance to watch this. I suppose I would say watch this and maybe also watch I, Claudius and see how good, like, BBC television productions could be. You know, mm-hmm. just from the point of view of like brilliant acting, brilliant storytelling, terrific, amazing stuff. For anyone who's not seen it, it's available for four ninety nine. The DVD on Amazon. That is pretty good. With the special feature, so there's a good documentary on there called Magnox, which is the original. It was the original title of it. It also had a title of Dark Forces, which would have been shit. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been terrible. And what I'm going to do even after this, because I've had to fast track some of it just to be able to watch, because it's basically six hours of television. And by the time we were speaking earlier in the week about doing this pod, I'd only seen the first two episodes at that point. So over the last three nights in particular, I've gone through the rest of it and not missed that much at all, really, I don't think. Mm. But I've had to skip it a little bit here and there. But what struck me was watching it, just thinking I'm going to put it on from the start and watch it again and watch it with my missus. And because it's as good as anything you'll get today, anything. This is the thing. 
it's so compelling a story and we we're drowned with tv series and god only knows how many bloody shows there are if this was made in this day and age you'd have like a series two wouldn't you and maybe a series three and a series four what was great at that time is they would just be these mini series if you want to call them them four parts six parts whatever and that was it the story's done absolutely and i, I think there's that's... no need to do anything more do something different yeah, I agree totally with you there, Lee. I think that's the wonderful thing is that is that you would get it all tied up over six episodes and it was left there because you know everything. I mean, the, it's it's a brilliant tragedy, Edge of Darkness. Certainly the two lead characters are dead. I mean, he, he's, he's the walking dead, graven at the top of the mountain. But yeah. this kind of beautiful moment of hope, as you say about the black flowers, that Emma's so succinctly talks about about life always finding a way even though mankind is can be fucking stupid and greedy mm-hmm. pathetic in the way it treats the the natural the natural world and the environment but it will find a way and that is that kind of little glimmer of hope for the world if not humanity yeah you know? at least grogan got his comeuppance in the end grogan got his comeuppance but there's this, there is that sense of utter guttural loss and loneliness from Craven at the end when he goes Emma at the top of the mountain because he's lost everything he he just wants I mean if it was really a melodramatic ending he would have just thrown himself off the mountain I think Mm -hmm. because really you know full well that Craven's going to die you know that's it and I think that that speech that Harcourt makes is beautiful We, we could just Maybe heard something on the mountain, and you knew damn well that when he mentions that, he's shouting Emma, and then it mm. shows him shouting Emma. And I don't know, it's just beautifully put together at the end there, beautifully summed up the whole thing. Yeah. You know? So thoughtful, such a brilliant piece of work, I think. As we drove down the valley, I thought I heard a cry, and that it was lost in the noise of the helicopter. When I looked back, he was gone. Emma! Well, you know what, Dave? We're coming to an end now, and I think finally we should mention the, which we haven't mentioned yet, is the Clapton and Cayman score. Yeah. Which is brilliant, and I know... It's always mentioned, it's it's always mentioned as, like, Bob Peck's performance is always mentioned, quite rightly. But it is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, you can't, you know, it, it, it's... No, not just Clapton. I mean, you've obviously got the famous Clapton motif. But the Cayman stuff, Michael Cayman, great composer. Yeah. He says on the documentary that he, he just bought this new keyboard and uh, he managed to produce these really atmospheric sounds. Yeah. And another thing I love as well is the shots of the train. Without doubt, I love So you it. get this train that is clearly carrying something through it's, the middle of the night. Some exactly. nuclear whatever. That's so evocative too. Yeah. What that's telling the audience is, you know, at night there are things that happen. There are clandestine and strange things that happen at night when you're lying in bed thinking you're safe watching your fucking television. Oh, brilliant. Because... We don't think about it today. 
no. in the way that I think we thought about it in the 80s. Mm. But it's just as bad. I'm sure it's just as bad. I'm sure there's all sorts of strangely nefarious things going on at night from a governmental point of view. Trains taking very dangerous stuff from one place to another. Ah, oh, amazing. But yes, I agree with you. The, the Clapton and Cayman work is great. In, in it. it's Well, it's a nigh on perfect. We've picked holes in a couple of things. But aside from that, it's a nigh on perfect piece of work, isn't it? Yeah. Well, just on the Clapton thing, when um, I can't remember who it was, it may have been the producer, I think Michael Waring, who had phoned up Clapton's agents because they just had an idea of who's the best guitarist in England, you know, who's the best we could get. And he thought, well, Eric Clapton. And he said that the manager laughed at him when he mentioned how much money they'd be able to pay. But he said, all right, I'll tell him, I'll tell him, I'll tell him. And then he came back on the phone a few hours later and goes, I can't believe he wants to do it. <laughs> but good for Clapton. Yeah, it didn't do his career any harm, did it? No, it didn't. Yeah. Great chat, Dave. Yeah, um, great, mate. Great. So, great. yes, listeners, piece of work. you've got to check out Edge of Darkness if you haven't already. And if you have seen it, I hope we've done it justice tonight. There's clearly a lot to cover, a lot to talk about, a lot to work out. I do think it's a series you do need to watch more than once. And I've noticed as well, because I, during watching it, I also did a little bit of research trying to find evaluations and reviews on YouTube about it. There's nothing. Yeah. No, There's I was trying to find nothing. out something, you know, because I still am troubled by this question of whose plutonium it was, who gave yeah. the order to who make the plutonium. Who I found it? anything on that. No. Yeah. No, it's incredible. You'd think there would be much more. I mean, I love it in a way. I love the ambiguity of that because it's like, who owns this fucking plutonium? But the fact that there are no reviews, no YouTube reviews about it. No. I mean, maybe we're being a bit groundbreaking doing a whole podcast on this, Lee, because yeah. there really isn't a lot about it. And for something that was so influential at the time, something that's hit all these lists of like, being one of the best TV series ever made by the BBC. There's nothing yeah, out there about celebrated. it. So that was episode three of our nuclear season, Edge of Darkness. Thanks for listening. Good night. Mm-hmm.